Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 20. We continue in our series of messages through the book of Revelation, and we're on chapter 20. I title this message, The Devil and the Day of the Lord, because here is, uh, here is a summary in very, very succinct form of what is called all throughout the Old and the New Testaments, the Day of the Lord. Beginning in verse 7. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Next week we'll come to the second resurrection and the great white throne judgment. But today the devil and the day of the Lord. Do you ever long for a time when sin and animosity and hatred and bitterness will all be done. Think about that. What a day it would be if the devil were bound now. This week, I just kept a little record. The things that captured some of the headlines. This is one week. This is one week. In Columbus, Ohio, a man bought $300 worth of Yersinia pestis, the bacteria which causes bubonic plague. And by the description of the man, he is an explosion ready to go off. What if some nut would start spreading the bubonic plague bacteria again in this country? Here in our own city, in Rolling Hills Apartments, a couple sitting in a car and a man drives by, whips out a gun, starts shooting through the car, kills one, injures the other. And the paper said that the argument had smoldered for two full days. And as if that wasn't enough, I pick up the paper the next day and a man in Asheville gets fired from his job for fighting on the job. So he goes down to the local gun shop, buys a gun, a carbine, I think it was, walks into the plant three days after he's fired, aims at the man who fired him, and kills three people and injures four. And his co-workers say, the guy's been a waiting time bomb. And as if that isn't enough, I pick up the paper the next day, and in San Diego, some crackpot former uh, tank crewman goes berserk, steals a tank... Can you imagine you're taking your kids to preschool and as you drive down the road, here comes an M60 tank towards you, crushed 40 cars. I've heard of revenge, but this is ridiculous. I've heard of anger, but that's beyond the bounds. 40 cars till the police opened the top of the tank and just shot him. I guess that's justice, fast justice, isn't it? Oh, I thought this bad enough, but then I picked up the paper and here's this article, a hundred New York City police officers go to a convention in Washington, D.C. to honor the memory of slain law enforcement officers 
And while there, they go on a three-day drunken rampage, tore up five hotels, acted like a bunch of kids, got the fire extinguisher, sprayed everybody, went everywhere all hours of the night, crying, screaming, singing, cursing. They went through the, the hotel lobbies naked to, just to see what they could provoke, I guess. They set off fire alarms, stole everybody's license tags in the parking decks of the hotels. You know, this was not a fraternity bash. These are respected adult men and women charged with keeping the law in New York City out of control because of liquor. And the irony of it was they were at a memorial service to remember slain officers. It's like they thought to themselves, I've got a right to commit all the mayhem I want to commit when my buddies have been shot while on duty. And I wanted to say what John said at the end of the book of Revelation, even so, come Lord Jesus. This world just gets more and more ridiculous by the day. The world has always longed for a golden age, always. The Chaldeans long for it. You can read it in the Babylonian literature. You can read it in the literature of the Medes and the Persians. You can see it in the uh, ancient Egyptians' manuscripts. People after people longed for an age when there would be no more war and there would be no more hatred and there would be no more enmity and no more animosity and no more sin. I love that old song. We'll soon be done with troubles and trials. We'll soon be done with troubles and trials. In this chapter, six times in these first ten verses is mentioned a period of a thousand years, six times. Now, there are folks who say they don't believe in an actual millennium. I don't understand, you know, if, if, uh, if the writer, the Holy Spirit, who moved John to write this and gave him the vision, led him to say six times a specific period of a thousand years, guess what I believe? I believe there is a millennial reign of a thousand years. Now, it doesn't tell us a lot about it. It doesn't give us a lot of information. We do know this, though, that the thousand-year golden age, what you have heard all your life as the millennium, the millennium from two Latin words, mille for thousand and annum for year, thousand years, millennium. There it is that its beginning and ending is marked by the, the binding and the brief loosing of Satan. So it's an age that is marked out by God's sovereign control over what is called three things in this passage, the old serpent, the devil, and Satan. All of his names are right here in this passage. And so we know that this age is an age in which the power of Satan, who right now in the church age is the prince of the power of the air. That's why uh, police officers go on a drunken rage. You understand that? When you say, I don't understand why these things happen. I'll tell you why they happen. It's one simple explanation. Satan is loose in this world. He's the prince of this age. 
but one day he's going to be bound. And that's what the millennium is about. Now, Christians need to be taught and they need to understand the millennium, the millennial kingdom. There is a jubilee time. Now, follow me for a moment. First, go back to Leviticus chapter 25. And in Leviticus 25, you begin to see this already hinted at way back in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 25, you will see this mentioned in Verse 25, when one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession and his kinsman redeemer comes to redeem it, he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the balance to the man to whom he sold it that he may return to his possession. Now, go on to verse 28. If he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And that Jubilee year, when the slaves were freed and debts were brought back to base zero, in the Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his possession. That was called the year of restoration or restitution. And in the foresight prophecy of the Old Testament, the Jubilee year was to the Jews what the millennium ought to be to all of God's people. Kids, just imagine. Suppose God said, um, I mean, suppose your parents say to you what God said to Israel. Uh, in the month of June, there are going to be uh, all arguments in the family will be eliminated. There will be no fighting. There will not have to be any correction. There will not have to be any enmity. There'll never be a crossword spoken in this house. You, everybody can have whatever they want for one whole month. Wow, wouldn't that be fantastic? God says, hey, there is coming an age. It's a jubilee age, a millennial reign. And there'll be no more enmity and no more war. And it will be the golden age of Israel. And there will be no more tanks driving down the streets of San Diego in the hands of a, of a wild man. Turn over to, to Daniel chapter 2 and you see it again. Daniel. Now he gives us a slightly different view of this millennium. In Daniel chapter 2, he points out that uh, this age has specific significance for the kingdom. Daniel 2 Verse 45. Read the whole chapter sometime. The end of Daniel's dream, but verse 44. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven, these kings who come out of the Roman kingdom, the last, the, the toes, the feet of Daniel's image. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. How many think God's already done that? Anybody around here see a kingdom already set up that's going to be eternal? which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. And there to Daniel, the idea is, that there's coming a reign, a time, when God will set up a kingdom that will never end and all other kingdoms will cease and will bow and Jesus Christ will be King of kings and Lord of lords. I want to show you one more reference. It's Acts chapter 3. You need to understand this, Bible students, because 
I want you to catch the whole import. Acts chapter 3, do you remember that in this, this, uh, uh, this, great, uh, this great message of, of Peter's after the healing of the, of the uh, man at the gate, he said in verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send, this is a prophecy, on down the line, after all have repented who are going to repent, that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restitution or restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now, Peter says it. There is coming an age, a golden age, a time when everything will be made right on this earth and then that thousand-year reign will just ease right on. The earth and heavens will be destroyed and God's kingdom will rule forever. Now, let me give you that scenario one more time. If you've been with us at all in this series of messages, you understand this. At the end of this age, Jesus Christ will come for the church. I'm, I'm looking for the king, aren't you? I'm looking for the king. And then there'll be a great seven-year tribulation period on this earth. And the Antichrist will dupe Israel. And he'll try to control the world and fool all the world into thinking that he's the Messiah. And then at the end of that seven-year period, Christ will come. There'll be the battle to end all battles in Megiddo called the Battle of Armageddon. And then when Christ has settled the issue and has judged the nations and ended all rebellion, he'll set up his kingdom and Satan will be bound. We saw that last week. Satan will be bound, and that's the way you can have a thousand-year reign, the golden age. And then at the end, our passage tells us he'll be loosed for a little season. He'll gather all the nations of the earth, Gog and Magog together, and fire will come down from heaven. It won't be a long battle, folks. It's not going to be a protracted battle. It's just going to, the end's going to come soon. And then Peter says that the earth and the heavens will melt with fervent heat, and then we'll live forever and ever with the Lord in his eternal kingdom. That's where we're going. Now I want to share with you four things that the Bible teaches about this period of the golden age. Four things that you need to understand. And I want to make a very important point, the most practical point for our lives. What does this mean to us? You know what I do when I get done working through a passage of Scripture that I'm giving exposition to, I always sit down and ask myself this question, so what? So what? What difference does it make? It's a good question, isn't it, Don? I mean, I want to find out. Who cares? Why should I worry? Why should I even know about the millennium uh, in, in, in prophecy? And I'll show you why that is. But here are four things. First, during this great millennial reign, it will be characterized by surrendered thrones. Notice how many times in this passage and throughout the book of Revelation I have mentioned to you that the saints of God will rule and reign. And here it is, verse 4. All the saved who come out of that extended first resurrection lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. A thousand years. Now, I believe that Satan has many demonic forces working in this world. I told you the devil is not ubiquitous. He can't be everywhere. Don't pray to the devil. But he's got forces that are called in Ephesians principalities and powers. 
Now, one of two things will happen. Either we will actually come back to this earth and reign in our resurrected bodies, or because we're in heaven seated with Christ and we've been positioned at the throne of God, we will, we will do in the millennial reign what the forces of Satan have done in this age. We will reign from glory, or it might even be both. The scripture never gives us great detail about how we will reign. But it's important to know that the, when the devil is captured in that abyss, all the demonic powers of the earth are also sealed and the principalities and powers that now rule this world will be no more. It's not just Satan. There will be no more principalities and powers under his hand. We wonder why things happen the way they do. How can things get so distorted and the truth get bent? And I'll tell you, that's one of the great tricks of the devil to deceive the world and take truth and make it seem like falsehood and take falsehood and make it seem like truth. And we wonder, how can that be in this world? And I'll tell you the truth. It's because Satan has his principalities and powers currently ruling this world for a season, for a space. But there will be surrendered thrones and we will take over them. Now, you'll hear me joke about it. I'll say one time, how many want to be governor of North Carolina in the millennial reign? But you know, the Bible never is really specific on that. But I do know this. You and I can't take the thrones of this world until they have been surrendered and given up. And that is why Satan has to be bound and all of his forces have to be bound before we can take whatever thrones God has for us in order that we might live and rule and reign with him for a thousand years. I'm struck by this. For the scripture says in, um, uh, in uh, verse 9 that at the end of this millennial reign of a thousand years that the, the kings of the nations gathered by Satan who's released just for a little season go up on the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire comes down. Now the camp of the saints is the headquarters from which we rule and reign. The word camp literally means that. It is the central place of residence and activity. Now, I, I, I'm not a speculator. As you know, I don't speculate much on the book of Revelation. But I want to tell you the truth. Satan and all of his demons will have to give up the kingdoms of this world and surrender their thrones. And you and I will live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. There's a second thing about this thousand-year reign, and that is it is not only a period of surrendered thrones, it's a time of suspended judgment. Suspended judgment. Judgment is done. God says, I'm going to judge Israel. And before Israel is a restored kingdom during the millennial reign, which it will be, God must finish his judgment of Israel. Hold your hand here and go back to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 20. You ought to have some idea. There are a host, there is a host of scriptures which tell us about God's judgment, but I'm going to show you just this main one. It is in Ezekiel chapter 20. In verse 33, he said, As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered. I have people all the time who ask me, Mark, why do you believe that God's going to restore Israel? Why do you say that? 
because of passages like this. When were the people of God gathered out of the countries? They're going to be gathered. They're all, it's already beginning to happen, isn't it? In the restoration of Israel. And I will bring you uh, into the wilderness of the peoples, and I will plead my case with you face to face. Verse 40. For on my holy mountain, on the mountain height of Israel, says the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them in the land shall serve me. There is coming a time when judgment will be done. I will accept them. I will require your offerings and the first fruits of your sacrifices together with all your holy things. I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. All the rest of this chapter talks about God's judgment on Israel. And God now says, there's coming a time when judgment will be done. Verse, 43, verse 42. Then you shall know, Israel, that I am the Lord. When I bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I lifted my hand in an oath to give to your fathers. Verse 44. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake not according to your wicked ways nor according to your corrupt doings, but I've dealt with you by the faithfulness of my name. God's judgment of Israel will be finished. Boy, during that tribulation, there will be intense judgment. I mean, Israel will be the focus point and God's people will be the focus point. If you think that was true in World War II, that's nothing compared to what's still coming. But secondly... Judgment will be over during that millennial reign for Israel, but judgment will be over for the Gentile nations. Read Matthew chapter 25. And when God, through the Lord Jesus, comes to set up his rule, Jesus tells us about that coming in Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Now, there are a lot of people who read this and say that's a general that's just a general judgment. There's going to be one great judgment at the end time, and God will take the sheep over here, the saved ones, and the lost over here. No, 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 no. This is when he sits on his throne. The nations, ethnos, ethnoi, the nations, the Gentiles will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, set the sheep on his right, the goats on the left, and the king will say to those on the right, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, people often use this passage, I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, as a motivation to do good works. Now, that's, that may be all right as a, as a third application, but the truth of this passage is that that's the way God will judge the nations. How did you treat my People, did you give them water when they were thirsty, food when they were hungry? That's the test. It's the test of the nations. At the end of that tribulation, there'll be a judgment of Gentiles. And then judgment is all done, all done. A thousand years, no more judgment. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> we had a deacons and wives fellowship. Don, I hate to pick on you. <laughs> But uh, I, I love this. Don and Diane were married 23 years ago yesterday and celebrated their anniversary. We threw a party for them over at our house, the Deacons and Wives Fellowship. But I was struck by something they said. It's wonderful advice. And Diane said early on when we were married, I drove down to Fayetteville and married them 23 years ago. 
Early on when we were married, Don told me that I won't confess your sins if you don't confess mine. I kind of like that. That's, that's a pretty good rule to go by. You got that one? <laughs> Nancy, you got that? I won't confess your sins if you don't confess mine. Boy, wouldn't that help a lot of marriages if we just practice that? Get off her back. Leave her alone a little bit. You let her confess her sins. Amen? All the men said, I mean, all the women said, amen. amen. <laughs> but you know what that means? That, that's, that's like what's going to happen in the great millennial reign. Just imagine there's no more chastening. We all serve the Lord. Oh, he reigns with a rule, uh, uh, with a rod of iron, yes. But there's no more judgment. Surrendered thrones, suspended judgment. The third thing that characterizes that age is sustained blessing. Sustained blessing. The age is a time of great blessing for everyone. Look at Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah speaks of it through the eye of faith in Jeremiah chapter 23. Oh, there are so many scriptures that I could have given you. I'm just going to choose to give you a look at this one. Verse 3 of Jeremiah 23, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. That's the purpose of a shepherd, to feed, to give the word of God. That's why I don't just preach uh, to the lost every Sunday. It's my job to feed you. You're sheep. I'm a shepherd. I'm a pastor. It's my job to help you understand what prophecy is and what that means to your personal life. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Boy, wouldn't that be great to have a time where there's nothing lacking, everything of everything that you need in that millennial reign. God says, for my people, there'll be nothing lacking. Aren't there some things you'd like to give your family there that you can't give right now? Maybe if you made $150,000, 200, 300, I don't know, maybe you do, but you make 300,000 a year. Maybe if you made that, you'd, uh, you'd be able to give them so that the children could say there's nothing lacking physically, but you can give them everything emotionally and spiritually and you know, God in that age says, Israel, I won't have to withhold crops from you anymore in judgment like he did in the Old Testament. I won't have to withhold rain from you anymore like he did in the Old Testament. You know that. All God's judgment had a time. I'll come back to that. And the Gentiles, oh yeah, there'll be a great time, a great time. Look at Isaiah, the blessing that God will pour even on the Gentiles in Isaiah chapter 2. The Gentiles will share in that. And it shall come to pass, verse 2, in the latter days, the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. This is that golden age. And shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Men and people shall come and say, come, all the ethnoi, in the New Testament, all the Gentiles will come to it. Many people will come up and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between all the Gentiles and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, 
and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's why I suppose I'm not a pacifist. We have to stay on guard in this age because we're still living in an age of sin. And, and that's why I, I think it's fine to work to try to avoid war. But folks, you're not going to have peace and the end of war without the king. And the king has got to come. And as long as this world is full, filled with tyrannical tin horn rulers, we have to stay ready for war. I want you men out of that AFA to understand theologically and biblically why there is a need for defense. It's right there. But there is coming a day. There is coming a time when we won't need any more war. And we'll, they'll beat their swords and their guns into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And it'll be a fruitful time of sustained blessing. There's one last thing, and that's it will be a time of a saved creation. We don't understand, but all creation feels the effects of the fall. It's not just man's sinfulness. Look at Romans chapter 8 and read carefully what Paul says about creation. In Romans chapter 8, if you understand this, you'll understand why when you clip those roses, you get scratches all over your hands if you don't put on uh, gloves. Do you ever wonder why that is? It's because of sin. Because even the world feels the effect of creation. And listen to what Paul says in verse 19. The earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. All creation cries out, boy, I'm ready for this new age, this golden age when the sons of God shall be revealed on the thrones. For the creation itself was subjected to futility. The creation itself, verse 21, will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the same liberty of the children of God. For right now, the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together. The whole creation labors, and not only they, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we Christians who have the Holy Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. That's why in Isaiah chapter 11, the Bible says, a lion shall lay down by the lamb. Do you know why that is? Because there'll be no more enmity in creation. There'll be no more enmity in creation. That's why in Isaiah 35, the Bible tells us about the golden age. And in Zechariah 14, when the king comes and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, the Bible says, all the earth shall move towards Zion when the Son of God comes. Now let me draw a very pointed point and I must close. What this means practically to me in my Christian life is this. That all suffering and chastening and judgment has a time limit to it except the last eternal torment mentioned in the next verses of this chapter. When God brought judgment on David for numbering the people, he said, choose, do you want a plague for three years and six months? When God brought judgment on Ahab, he brought a drought for how long, class? Seven years. It was laid out, it was marked. When Judah was taken into captivity, it was for a specific time, 70 years. 
I want to tell you, folks, that's what keeps me going. All judgment and chastening of God is timed. There's an end to it. I don't know what you're going through, but the fact that at the end of time, God's going to hold Satan for a thousand years and show us this golden age tells me that everything we go through is temporary. Amen? Aren't you glad for that? That's why Paul said, Our light affliction, which is but for a what? A moment. You know what I tell children when they say to me, I don't like what my mom and dad is doing. I say, hang on because you won't be a child forever. Amen? They're going to grow up. <laughs> when you're a teenager and you say, Mom, why do you want me in at 11 when everybody else gets to stay out to three? I say, hang on. It's only temporary. All judgment and all chastening and all suffering, this tells me, is temporary. Only God is eternal. Look around you. Everything you see is temporary. I don't care how hard that stone from Montgomery County is. That stone is temporary, and someday it will melt with a fervent heat. I don't care how hard that pulpit may be. It is temporary. It's going to end. And I don't care how difficult your trial may be. There's an end coming to it. There's an end. There's an end. Hang on. There's an end. All suffering and chastening is temporary. It's timed. And it has a purpose. I love that old story about Winston Churchill and Eleanor Roosevelt. You know, they didn't like each other. He thought she as ugly as, a, as an old fence. And one day, the story goes, she saw him drunk. And she said, shame on you, Sir Winston, for getting in this condition. He said, shame on you, Eleanor. The difference is, I'll get over mine. You're so ugly. Shame on you, Eleanor. The difference is, I'll get over mine in the morning. <laughs> I was standing next to my pregnant youngest daughter, and neither she nor I felt good. I said, how you feeling, honey? And she said, well, I'm doing all right. How you feeling, Dad? I said, I'm doing all right. Only you'll get over yours, and I won't get over mine to glory. <laughs> yours will be done in July. Mine will be done whenever God's done with me. Amen. I don't know whether that means anything to you, but to me, I ask, why not? Why didn't God crush Satan earlier? And the answer is, he'd have just been, he'd have had all the, the usurpers to his throne and the pretenders to his throne lined up coming after him. God has chosen to let us go through these things so that he can make us righteous in Jesus and get us ready so that we can rule and reign and live with him forever. And at the end of that golden age, Satan will be loose for just a brief spell. He'll be devoured from, from uh, heaven with fire. And then we'll, the earth and the heavens will also be devoured, and then we'll live forever with him in an eternal place, forever and ever and ever. Why doesn't God end it now, then, you say? The answer is Romans 2, 4, and 5. The goodness of God is designed to lead you to repentance, to bring you to confess, to salvation. That's why God lets you go on. That's why, but there's coming a day where, where it will be over. You either choose to take Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life and follow him, crown him now, and immediately when you do, there is guaranteed an end to your suffering and an end to any chastening or any condemnation if you do that, if you refuse Christ, I'm telling you, there is no end. The torment of eternal judgment is forever and ever and ever. 
I was driving down Main Street this week, and I passed the Wachovia building. And the man was waving traffic. They had a lane blocked. I was stopped in the traffic, and I rolled my window down and said, what's going on? He said, the building is finished, structurally. We're putting the dome on the top. And then he laughed and said, it's sort of like a crown because the building is done. As I sat there in that traffic, I thought, yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> One of these days, the building in my life is done. The building in your life is done. The crown promised will be set. It's in that golden age when God gets ready for that and we come and reign with him.